of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a great opportunity to really focus in on what is really central to us in the Christian faith. It's, it's the high point of Christianity, really, is the resurrection. So we are excited to be able to join together on Resurrection Sunday. And you know, one of my, my favorite things about Resurrection Sunday is that we get to share in a kind of a greeting exchange, what, what some people call the paschal greeting. And it's when one person says, and it's actually been around since about the first century, since very early on. And it's thought that it came from when Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb and the angel said, he's risen. And so the Christians adopted that early on as a way to greet each other. And so one believer would greet another believer and say that, Either Christ is risen or he is risen. And then the, the response back from the other believer would be, he is risen indeed. So um, I want to do that together as a church. And we did it earlier. I want to do it again. It's one of my favorite things to do on Resurrection Sunday. So let's together proclaim, he is risen. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen and one more time, he is risen. He is risen Amen. Well... I love it. It's a, it's a bold declaration of belief. It's a bold affirmation of the truth. And it's also a confession that we make. So we're, we're declaring that we believe it to be true. We are affirming it. And then, as well, we're acknowledging that sometimes we struggle with belief. And so it's a, it's a confession of belief. It's a way to remind ourselves of the truth. And so the reason we confirm and affess I mean, confess and affirm that truth, is because we need reminders, don't we? We can often lack faith. We can often have challenges of belief. We can struggle to believe. Circumstances, suffering, situations, relational difficulties, struggles, those things can challenge our belief. Our, our belief that God is with us, that He is really alive, that He is actively at work. And we need to remind ourselves regularly about the fact that we believe that Jesus indeed is risen. You know, ever since the very beginning for humanity, humanity has struggled with believing that what God says is true. In, in, in the very beginning, Adam and Eve, it was fundamentally a question of not believing that what God said was true was really true, that not believing that God had, had their best interest at heart. And ever since then, as fallen creatures, as fallen humanity, we've struggled, we've struggled with unbelief. I mean, who here can say that they, they never struggle with unbelief. Anybody? If so, I, I would love to have you come up and explain how, how are you that strong that you never wrestle with unbelief when you face a difficulty or a trial or financial hardship or relational difficulties or whatever it might be, or suffering or struggles. If you think about it all throughout the Old Testament, it's a question of whether people will choose to believe what God said is true objectively or whether they'll believe their circumstances and what they see around them. In the very beginning, Abraham, he was the father of the faith. And, and he boldly went out and he went down into the promised land and he was obeying God. But two significant major times, he wrestled with unbelief when he went to Egypt and he went to Abimelech and he lied that his wife was his sister because he wrestled with unbelief. Isaac wasn't much better. He learned from his father's example, and, and Isaac did the same exact thing and struggled with unbelief. This is the patriarchs, the, the founders of the faith. And then you see Jacob, his very name means deceiver because he fundamentally wrestled with unbelief, and it was unbelief that drove his deceit. 
He didn't believe that God really would bless him as God had promised. And so he tried to secure the blessing on his own by, by deceiving, manipulating. He stole his brother's birthright. And then after that, he tricked his father because he didn't believe that God would bless him. And he wanted to secure the blessing on his own. Moses, he's probably the greatest character in the entire Old Testament and Moses has encountered the burning bush and he's seen the Lord or, or manifestation of God's presence and, and he responds to God and you think this is going to be awesome and then when God says he wants to speak for him Moses says oh but God I, I've got this issue with my tongue I kind of stutter I don't, I don't speak very well you know how can that be Moses at the very outset of his calling wrestled with unbelief then you skip ahead and You see that God was merciful to Moses. The greatest prophet, perhaps, in the entire Old Testament, Elijah, he he challenged these 450 prophets of Baal to a contest to say, if your God is real, why don't you do whatever you can? You can cut yourselves, you can dance around, you can um, do whatever mumbo-jumbo you want, you can create your altar, I'll create mine. I'll wait for you to go. And then after they went, he pours 12 large barrels of water on his altar, so much that it's, it's filled with water in the ditch all around it. Elijah prays to God. God rains down fire, consumes the whole altar, the stones, and everything. Then Elijah takes up a sword and personally, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and this is a little hard for us to get in our culture today, he actually kills 450 prophets of Baal. I mean, the guy's arm must have been tired. He, he, he was acting in faith. He was doing amazing works of faith. And yet, what's the very next thing he does when Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, says that she wants to kill him? Elijah wrestles with unbelief. And he goes out into the wilderness and he hides and he, he's a little self-pitying. And he says, you know, God, she wants to kill me. What should I do? But God was merciful. Just like God was merciful to Abraham and went to Abraham and, and intervened with the Pharaoh. God was merciful to Isaac's a wife and intervened and, and gave Abimelech knowledge that it was not his wife. And God was merciful to Jacob and God was merciful to Moses and God was merciful to Elijah and fed him personally. And it says an angel of the Lord came and fed him. It was most likely the pre-incarnate Christ that came to Elijah in the midst of his unbelief. There are many other accounts in the Old Testament of how followers of God struggle with unbelief, but God met them and came to them in the midst of their unbelief. In the New Testament, it's not much different, is it? If you look throughout the account of the people who walked with Jesus, who walked personally with him for several years, and they struggled with unbelief. And really, prior to the resurrection, they still didn't really get who the Messiah was really supposed to be. One of my favorite accounts is the story of the father who brings his young son it's a terrible thing. I can imagine as a, as a father putting myself in his shoes. His son is possessed by a demon, throwing, himself, throwing the, the boy down into fire, into water sometimes. And ever since he was a young child, and this, his father comes to Jesus and says, if you can do anything. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And, and I love the response of Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, what do you mean if I can? Get out of here. He does say, if you can. But he comes to this man in his unbelief and he says, all things are possible for the one who believes. 
And immediately, I love the father's response, immediately the father cries out in response and he says, I believe, help my unbelief. I can relate to that father more often than not. That's why I like the story is because the father came with a mixture of belief. He, he kind of thought Jesus could heal him. He wasn't exactly sure. He, he was trying. He was wanting to believe in Jesus. He had weak faith. And so often for so many of us, that is like us. We have weak faith. And yet Jesus, he corrects him for his weak faith, if you can. But then he says all things are possible for him who believes. We still encounter unbelief if you continue on in the story of the Gospels, of the four accounts in the Gospels. Peter, he didn't trust in God to keep him, to keep him from being killed or to keep him if he was killed. And so when Peter was challenged by a young servant girl and then another person, three times Peter denied Jesus. And fundamentally, he denied Jesus not because he didn't know Jesus, but because he didn't believe that God could protect him, that he would be okay no matter what happened to him. He gave in to unbelief. After Jesus died and he was in the tomb, almost all the disciples struggled with unbelief. Actually, all of them did. One responded well early on. But every single one of the disciples, every one of the followers of Jesus, including his own mother, the people closest to them, they all struggled with unbelief. They didn't know what to do. They were confused. Jesus had died. He was in the grave. They had seen him with their own eyes die. They had seen him be put in the grave. They had seen him be wrapped up. And they were distraught. They had no idea what to do. They were confused. They thought he was the Messiah. But this didn't seem to fit with what they understood of the Messiah. How could the Messiah die and, and they were really perplexed. They were struggling. They were confused. They were distraught. They didn't expect him to rise from the dead because nobody does that, right? It's not possible, humanly speaking. Especially not if somebody had been scourged and crucified and tortured. And The careful physician, Luke, we have this for you on the overheads. So if you'd like, you can turn your Bibles to Luke 24 as well. In Luke 24... He records on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. Let's pause for a second. They are going to the tomb not expecting Jesus to be alive. They're going in unbelief, expecting to anoint his dead body with spices so that he would not smell so much in his death. Now look in verse 2. It says, they found the stone stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember? Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again? Luke's drawing attention to the fact that they should have believed. They should have remembered. Then in verse 8 he says, Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the leaven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, which is the mother of Jesus, and the others with them who told this to the apostles, 
Get the apostles' response. What's the very first response from the apostles in, in verse 11? It says, but they did not believe. They did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. After all, who believes that somebody can be raised from the dead? It seems like absolute, utter nonsense. They didn't believe the women because the testimony of women was accounted as, as less than the testimony of thieves. Thank God we don't have that view. The 11 apostles, the other followers of Jesus, they didn't believe right away because it seemed like nonsense to them. It was hard to believe. Mark tells us that at first when the women heard the angels tell them that Jesus is risen and tell the disciples, they, they didn't at first respond. Luke, Luke's being kind to them. He's saying the women heard and then they went and told the apostles. He's skipping the middle part that Mark tells us about. Mark is... is kind of a little more raw in his gospel. And he tells them that when they first heard, they were trembling, they were bewildered, they fled the tomb, and they didn't tell anybody at first because they were afraid. And then we see later, John tells us, that actually Mary Magdalene didn't immediately believe. It took her a while to get there too, and she saw two angels. John 20, verse 2, tells that account of Mary Magdalene, she hadn't said he was risen, but the Apostle John tells us. And so she, she comes running to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one Jesus loved, who, by the way, is likely John, not mentioning himself in that way. But he says, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and listen to how she puts it, and we don't know where they've put him. She didn't say, they've taken him out of the tomb, and he's risen. She said, they've taken him out of the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. She's still wrestling with unbelief. Look in verse 3. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb, both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there. He was actually afraid to go in probably at first. And it says, but he did not go in. And Simon Peter, in his very brash fashion, he caught up to him. He says he was behind him. I can't, I can't help but think John was bragging a little bit there. He ran faster than Peter. He says, Peter's behind him. He arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. And the cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. And that, that, meant, that detail is mentioned because it's as if the body of Jesus came right out of the, the burial cloth, but his face cloth was taken off and folded up neatly and put on the side. It's an unusual thing. And in verse 8 it says, finally the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. This is the first time you see somebody believe. It says, he saw, in verse 8 there, and believed. And then the, the parentheses there, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. They still didn't understand. Look in verse 10, it says, the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary, here's Mary. She saw John believe. She's gone back to the tomb. It's still empty. It says, but Mary, in verse 11, stood outside the tomb crying as she wept. She bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white. See where Jesus' body had been. One at the head, one at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said. And I don't know where they put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman... He said, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener. She said, sir, if you have carried him away, 
Okay, this is after the angels have told her. Sir, if you have carried him away, she says, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. The disciples didn't believe at first. They had to check things out for themselves anyway. So far, John is probably the only one who's believing in the resurrection. Mary Magdalene still has not believed yet, even after the empty tomb and the angels. And shortly after this, Cleopas and a friend, they are traveling. They've left the disciples and they're on their way to Emmaus. And they're heading on their way to Emmaus. And as they're going, uh, they're talking about these things. And the stranger comes up and says, what things are you talking about? And they say, what do you mean what things? If you've been in Jerusalem, if you've come from Jerusalem, there's no way you could have missed out on hearing this. The whole city has heard about what happened there. And he says, well, what things? And it's really the stranger is Jesus. They don't recognize him. So Luke 24 tells us that account in verse 19. He says, about Jesus of Nazareth. They replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. Now listen closely to verse 21. But we had hoped, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Problem is, they still didn't believe. All of that, they still didn't believe. So in verse 25, Jesus says to them, How foolish you are, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So, these disciples, they still don't get that it's Jesus. They go on, they they ask this seeming stranger to eat with them. They're having dinner together, about to have dinner together this The stranger who is Jesus, he picks up the bread to bless it. And as he does it, all of a sudden they understand, oh my goodness, this is Jesus. And instantly he vanishes. They had said, we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And and you know what's remarkable about that is that Jesus stuck with them. He stayed with them. He was patient. He explained who he was from the scriptures. He showed who he was from God's word. And then he mercifully revealed himself to them. He didn't depart. He didn't leave them in their unbelief. And for all who struggle with unbelief today, he doesn't leave us in our unbelief. He doesn't leave you in your unbelief. He doesn't leave you in your struggles. He shows us who he is in his word. He's merciful. He reveals himself to us. I I love... I love how that story of Mary Magdalene ends because it doesn't end there with her asking the gardener, where have you put him? I want to go and take him. Immediately, Jesus' response to her was merciful. He didn't say, I don't know, and walk away. He could have. Instead, he just, he said one word. He, he called her by name and he says, Mary. And I love that as soon as he named her, as soon as he called her by name, she, she believes and she falls at his feet and worships. 
And we find out later that Peter still not believed, even now. But somewhere in between the road to Emmaus and when Jesus appears to disciples, which we'll get to in just a moment, somewhere between those two things, Jesus had to personally appear to the apostle Peter for Peter to finally believe. This was the leader of the New Testament church in the very beginning, and Jesus had to make a personal appearance to him. Luke 24 tells us the continuation of that account, and it says, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, and get this next line, thinking they saw a ghost. They were still struggling with unbelief. He said to them, why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? But then he's merciful. Not only has he come to them in his mercy, he's spoken peace to them. But now he shows them himself. He says, in verse 39, look at my hands and my feet. It's I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones, as you see I have. And when he said this, he showed him his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? I'll show you I'm really physical body. I'm, I'm really flesh and blood. I'm, I'll eat something for you, okay? In verse 42, it says, Then they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. And he said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law and of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. I love that because it really encompasses all of Scripture. The whole Old Testament points to Jesus, is fulfilled in Jesus. It says, then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what was written, the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And listen how he helps them in their unbelief. He says, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Jesus comes to them and he meets them in their unbelief and patiently explains everything in the Scripture because he wants them to encounter him. He wants them to understand who he is. He wants them to understand that this is what the whole Bible has been all about, that the Messiah must come and be killed and rise again on the third day. John tells us that one of the twelve wasn't there for some reason. We don't know why Thomas was, was not there, but for some reason Thomas wasn't there. And so in John 20, we can read that account as well. John 20, 24, it says... In 25, sorry, that, so the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. So 10 of the 11 remaining disciples see Jesus in person. The guys on the road to Emmaus have seen Jesus in person. Mary Magdalene has seen Jesus in person. They're all telling Thomas this. And what's Thomas' response? Look down in verse 25. It says, but he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. If you struggle with unbelief, you're in good company. Verse 26, it says, A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. A week later. Then continuing on in verse 26, Though the doors were locked... Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. And then Thomas said, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus said to him, Because you've seen me, you believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. 
And that applies to each and every person here who's not seen and yet believed. You will be blessed with repentance, forgiveness of sins. Jesus came to Thomas in his unbelief. He met him, spoke peace to him, told him to stop doubting and believe. Time after time after time after time, God comes to his people. Jesus comes to the disciples in the midst of their unbelief, in the midst of their doubting, in the midst of their struggles, in the midst of their trials, and he speaks peace, and he mercifully speaks them by name, and he shows them who he is from his word. He reveals why it's all true. The book of Acts says that Jesus stayed with them for 40 more days, revealing himself countless times, and then um, at one occasion to over 500 people at once. What a picture of patience and mercy so that Jesus made sure that they believed. You know, all those accounts of the doubting of the apostles and disciples, they actually lend more credence to the historical account of Jesus because no one in their right minds who's trying to convince somebody of something that wasn't true would ever write about all the doubts, all the problems, all the unbelief. They would gloss over it and they would paint this pretty picture. But it's not a pretty picture. It's a messy picture because it deals with real humans and the real risen Savior. And also this account, the other thing that stands out is that no one in the right mind in the first century would ever have used women to be the first people to testify to Jesus. Because women, unfortunately, were looked down upon and their testimony was seen as worthless. You kind of see that when the disciples responded to them as well. If somebody was trying to create an account, they would never create it like that. They would create it with perhaps the most reputable men in the community giving testimony to Jesus first. But Jesus comes to those who struggle. He comes to those who are looked down upon. He comes to those who are lowly. The other good fact to remember is that all of the disciples were doubting and afraid after the death of Jesus. But then, you know what happens? They go from this band of scared, hiding, terrified disciples who were timid, who Peter had denied even knowing Jesus to, they go from that, they were so convinced that the resurrection was true, they proclaimed Jesus everywhere they went, and and no one would collude together to the point of death like that and stay so consistent, it's impossible, no one in humanity is able to do that, and yet um, they kept their faith to the end, and every one of the disciples except for John was martyred for their testimony of the resurrection of Jesus. John was actually kicked off and put on the Isle of Patmos. They didn't benefit financially unlike some of the various lies that have been concocted at the start of different religions throughout the ages. Islam and Mormonism concocted lies for greed and power. The disciples had nothing to gain and everything to lose. It just testifies to the fact that the resurrection is indisputable. In fact, later, Peter himself, he wrote something that we read at the beginning of our time together. In 1 Peter 3, I'm going to read it for you again. And, and Peter, the same one who denied Christ, here's what his wonderful testimony is towards the end of his life. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection 
of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter was so confident, even towards the end of his life, many years later, the thing that drove Peter was the truth of the resurrection life of Jesus. It's what empowered Jesus in his daily life. It's what sustained Jesus. It's what Peter, it's what sustained him. It's what gave Peter hope. It's what said, Peter said, we are being guarded until the last day, and he has an inheritance for us. Why do I, how do I know all this? Because the resurrection is true. That's how I know that God's been merciful, and we have a living hope. And he uses the word there for living hope. It's it's kind of similar to uh, the same phrase that Jesus used. It's the same exact word, living hope. Same phrase there is living water, when Jesus said that to the woman of the well, he said, if you knew who I really was, you would ask for me and I would give you living water. And what that, that means is a well would be dug and water would kind of pool in that well and be collected. But if dirt got kicked in there, it would be muddy, it would be defiled, it could get gross, it could get old, it wouldn't be fresh. Living water was something different. It was from an aquifer, it sprang up, it was always fresh and renewed, it was, it was full of life and it was clean and clear and it didn't end. And so Peter says that same word. He says, we have a living hope. We have a hope that bubbles up. We have a hope that's always and ever renewed. A hope from a source that's not from ourselves. A hope external to us. A hope that we don't, we don't have to wonder if it will be there. We have a hope that is continually being refreshed and, and, and runs clear. And that hope is based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a sure and steady hope doesn't get polluted. If you're kicked dirt in the well of your hope, dwell on the resurrection and you have living hope. Peter's saying is that since the resurrection is true, we all have hope in the world that will never run dry if we really understand that Jesus is alive. So the question for you and for me is, do you really believe that Jesus has been resurrected? That's the most important question you will ever answer your entire life. Do you really believe that Jesus has been resurrected, that Jesus is alive? If you really truly believe that Jesus is alive, that truth will sustain you your entire life if you put your hope in that truth, that Jesus is alive. Why is that? Because if Jesus is alive, then he is is more powerful than death. If Jesus is alive, it means that all of his promises are true. If Jesus is alive, it means that everything he preached was proven and validated by his resurrection. If Jesus is alive, it means that everything that he did, all of his work that he came to do, was vindicated by his resurrection. If you really get that Jesus is alive, then you're going to get that he really brings forgiveness. That he really brings cleansing. That there really is no condemnation. If you really get that Jesus is alive, you're going to trust in him no matter what. Peter went on to say in that same passage that even though we continue to suffer, we hold on to that resurrection hope that we have that's still undefiled. No amount of dirt can kick into that well and make it defiled We have a resurrection hope that will never run out no matter what suffering is going through. The question for you and I, though, is if you're in the midst of relational suffering, and I I know that given the size of the church, I'm guessing there's a good percentage of people here who are in relational suffering of some kind. 
And sometimes we can lack faith because we don't believe that the power of the resurrected Savior is able to either sustain us or to resolve that. So do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus in your relational suffering? Do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus in your financial difficulties to either sustain you or to resolve them, one or the other? Do you believe that Jesus really is over all those things? Do you believe in the midst of your suffering and sickness or infirmity that Jesus really is alive and he is able to either to heal if he wills or sustain you faithful to the end? Do you really believe that Jesus is alive? Do you believe he's alive enough to rescue your child who was wayward? Do you believe that Jesus is alive to rescue your marriage or to sustain you through it? Jesus claimed that he had power over life and death, and the resurrection proves that his claims are true. He claimed he has power to forgive sins and that we'll receive treasures in heaven as we serve him. He he promised us life and life more abundantly, that we have power over demons and, and nature. He promised food that gives eternal life. He promised he would never send away any who came to him. Do you believe in the resurrection? It's the most essential question, really, to all of Christianity. John 6, 40, Jesus says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And here's the resurrection hope. He says, And I will raise Him up on the last day. Do you believe in the resurrection life of Jesus? If so, that's our hope, that He will raise us up, that He gives us eternal life. Go ahead and have the band come up and we'll close in song in just a moment. You know, we, we still face doubts, don't we? We still face and are troubled with unbelief. Like the doubting father who says, I believe, help my unbelief. That's Jesus answers that feeble prayer. And so this morning, you, you might be struggling with unbelief in some way. Maybe it's one of the categories I mentioned. Maybe it's relational suffering. Maybe it's physical suffering, pain, hardship, difficulty, finances, whatever it might be. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe, maybe it's your child. Maybe you're struggling with unbelief in, in some other way. Jesus calls you to come to him, to look on him, to believe in him, and then really he, he mercifully answers our pathetic prayer when we say, I believe, help my unbelief. So as we close today, I'd ask you to consider what areas of your life are you facing and challenged with unbelief? Apply the resurrection of life of Jesus to that. And remember, because of the resurrection, he's able to sustain you through those things, to enable you to bear up through those things, or to change those things. Everything is possible for the one who believes. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your Son to mercifully come to us in the midst of our unbelief. Jesus, thank you for calling us by name, for drawing us. God, I pray that any who are here that have not yet placed their faith in you, that that any who are here like that would place their trust, their belief in you, and that you would save them, make them new, give them eternal life. God, for the rest of us who do believe in you, however weakly, God, I pray that you would strengthen our faith in you through your resurrection life. 
and that you would give us fresh hope and life and faith in you because you have been raised. In your name we pray, amen.